Hello, I'm Leroy Garcia, and this is Blue Rain Gallery Podcast. Today in the studio, we have with us uh, appraiser extraordinaire, Vanessa Elmore. Welcome. Hi. I have known Vanessa for probably now close to 18 years or so. What do you think? How many years? It's been a while. <laughs> been a long time. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to bring Vanessa in here for, for many reasons. One, um, to introduce her, her to our audience, uh, because some of the things that she offers applies across the board, and that's concerning appraisals. Um, we'd like to talk a little bit about the Native American contemporary market, where it is right now, and where we think it might be headed in the future. Uh, I'd like to talk about her journey. So let's just start with uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, thank you, first and foremost, for having me. And, and I'll, I'll share with the audience right away. Thank you, Leroy, for supporting <laughs> me directly and indirectly for so many years. Um, it's a real honor to, to not only have worked for you, but to call you a friend. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I've been here in Santa Fe a little over 20 years. I came um, fresh out of college. I uh, landed here in 1998, looking to get into the Native American art world. Um, and I was very lucky that really quite soon after landing here in Santa Fe, I started working over at Morning Star Gallery on Canyon Road. And at that time, that gallery had been around for quite a long time and they um, and are still around now, owned by Nidra Matucci, uh, who also has her own gallery. And I also worked for her for a number of years. So I really cut my teeth at the beginning of my career with antiques. So uh, historic material, pieces from the 19th century all the way back to ancestral works or prehistoric pieces. I did that for almost a decade and decided that I needed to expand my experience in, in working with Native American art. And Blue Rain Gallery was on my radar <laughs> from the get-go. And so it was uh, probably the hardest decision I ever made was to leave the comfort of working for Morningstar and for Nidra uh, for many years and took the risk. And you <laughs> rewarded that risk and I was able to come and start working here for you. Um, and you know, the point of getting here to work with you, Leroy, was that I wanted to come and work with the best contemporary artists. I felt like I could come to your team and bring a perspective from history, but that was really understanding where some of these artists were trying to quote from, but bringing it to today. To today. And for me, that was really exciting to see um, traditions, not only in terms of culture, but also in terms of media types, materials, and how artists were pushing the bounds and trying new things. Uh, and that's, that was exciting. And that's really took my career to the next level was to be here with you and to see these artists and, and to be a small part in, in having some of these artists find success. That was, um, that's always something as I know you get a lot out of seeing an artist succeed, not only for the gallery's success, but for them personally. Um, I know that you really believe in your artist, Leroy, and that was something that I, I took immense pride in being part of that with you. 
Vanessa may be left out a little bit, but she uh, married into a, a, <laughs> a family that uh, deals in historic and contemporary Native American art, and that's the Elmore family. And um, actually, we've engaged as well with her husband, Paul, um, who works for uh, Faust Gallery, or um, Shiprock. Shiprock, right, Shiprock. And uh, very knowledgeable. And um, I, I remember having a couple of really nice intellectual discussions about pricing things uh, that went on for hours and hours. Because sometimes that's hard to do, to find the balance of where prices really are at. And um, sometimes it, it takes risks, sometimes it takes courage to push a market like we have had and done in the past and are still doing. Um, and it's because we believe in these artists um, that have worked for many decades to get to these places. And in some respects, their prices might seem high, but compared to the regular markets, modern markets, that's very, very affordable. Um, I always compare uh, like Preston Singletary's work. People are like, wow, that's, that's really expensive. It's 25 or 30,000. But his contemporaries before him, like William Morris, for the same size of piece might be a quarter million. So it's just all about perspective. And um, I've appreciated that uh, intellectual dialogue over the years with you. So what I'd like to ask is, how do you see the current state of the uh, contemporary Native American market? It's exciting. It's growing. It's, I mean, there's a couple different ways to look at it. If we're talking about, you know, ideas that are being presented, there are incredible ideas that are being pushed again, um, not only in terms of compositions and styles and themes and content, the content is stronger than ever now. It's all over the board too. It is, and in all media. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can talk about in terms of the values and, and recognition. Um, I think contemporary Native artists have, many of them have broken out of what you know we would classify as being a Native American artist or an American artist. And these things are now starting to drive together, to meld, um, as they should have always been. I mean, it's, it's always been interesting when, you know, when does an artist choose to emphasize that they are a Native American artist versus just an American artist who's trying to make a statement about something that really affects more than just that particular culture or region of the U.S. Well, you know, I noticed a, a dead spot in that for a while uh, amongst the museums outside of the Native American genres like the herd or the Mayak or whatever. Um, but I will say in the last uh, 10 years, there has been a strong push by museums across the country that are finally recognizing what we're talking about. What so we've noticed slow. for a long time. Yes. It's like they're in quicksand trying to run and they just can't get there. Uh, but they're getting there now. And uh, we're, we're constantly placing things in museums across the country. And they're making commissions. That's the other thing that I really like is that they are reaching out to these artists to say directly and say, we need your presence. We need your art. We need your point of view. Um, well, like the, the Museum of Indian Art and Culture here now and always, that was all that was about. Uh, it was a complete integration of the artists describing where they're coming from. So you had a firsthand account. And that's what IFAM over there in Oklahoma is doing the same thing. They've integrated uh, the thoughts of the native artists in uh, producing the exhibits. And so that's really helping and stuff. Um, where do you think this is headed? 
this market, this Native American market? I think it continues to, to head up and up and up and continue to get spotlights, yeah. um, media coverage, uh, major museum shows, not only in terms of museums doing, you know, these these more inclusive retrospectives of what American art is and trying to include people of color or people of minorities in the U.S. that have not had these platforms before. That's one angle. But actually giving platforms to Native artists alone. Or, you know, we're starting to see more single-person shows. Well, think about the latest exhibit from Preston Singletary in the Smithsonian uh, in Washington, D.C. That's a 10,000-square-foot exhibit that's traveling from museum to museum across the country. In fact, uh, I think in February, that exhibit is moving to the Chrysler Museum. And uh, and from there, <laughs> who knows where, it might end up in Alaska. Uh, but, and I, I see, I can see this uh, integration, even in Meow Wolf with uh, Virgil Ortiz. You know, there, there's a lot of great things that are coming in. And these folks are laying the foundation for huge uh, progress in the contemporary Native American art field, as far as I'm concerned. I think you probably feel the same way. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that people often ask, well, why was this an area of art history or art that I got interested in? And this is it. It was because 25, 30 years ago, I felt that Native American art history was still really young. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of publication. There wasn't a lot of <clears throat> academic focus on it. The and only felt, academic focus was American Indian Art Magazine. Correct. And a handful of publications that had come out in the 70s where all of a sudden ethnography became art, but it still hadn't really made that full jump yet. It was still classified as anthropological material. Right. Um, so when I started to get into the academic scene, I started to realize well, this is there's still so much to be done here. And why are contemporary Native artists not part of you know, these I, conversations? I think it was because it was an evolution that was happening before our eyes. Um, even the artists were so stuck in the ethnological traditional formats that things had become stagnant. And it wasn't until you had, uh, you, you had waves of this in the contemporary Native world, uh, especially in the, the late 60s, early 70s. That was a huge breakout. Um, but then you... We waited about 20 years <laughs> to get to the 90s and then you had the Tony Abedas and the Tammies and the Prestons and the Virgils and the Roxanne's hit um, and, and what and, they realized and was and I'll interject that at that time the historic market was booming yes yeah right so we were seeing at that time we were seeing prices paid for 19th century beadwork and pottery that was breaking records at that time yeah so again I feel you know I look at the market and this trajectory of Native American art over a very long time period. And, and so I understand, and I, I, at least I try to understand, how we've gotten here based on those. Well, it's taken the collaboration of the museums finally getting onto, but also the artists realizing that they can be inspired from their tradition in new ways. And, and having access. Well, I think about Virgil and watching him recently. Um, who would have said to Virgil or thought Virgil 20 years ago that he would not work with traditional clay or start working in glass or getting into the fashion side of stuff, right? So there was a, like this progression. And I can say that. But even that. he's a good example too. Mm -hmm. How did he, his, that first spark for him came from hanging with mm -hmm. 
Yep. Longtime dealer Bob Gallegos in Albuquerque, who at that time had the largest collection of cochadin pottery monos, right? Yes. So yeah. we're talking about pottery figures from the 1870s through the 1890s. And he, I remember that collection and it was incredible. But even that's an evolution because think about where he started before that. Virgil, when I first met him uh, 30 years ago, was making little bears. Right. <laughs> like storyteller but uh just bears and they were they were cute and uh who'd ever thought <laughs> well, the creativity right. exploded that's right I, I just saw a virgil piece from when he was probably a teenager in mm -hmm. a collection the same thing it was a little storyteller bear yeah <laughs> um, and you know you put that next to one of the you know one of his newer pieces with you wouldn't even recognize it at, no, at, at all no not yeah. at all but that that is a really, he is a perfect example of why I've been so interested in this in being able to to say okay there is a foot in the in, in the historic meaning we can tap into a tradition that he was looking at that already existed and where has he pushed it forward and he's even not only now but he's put, he's giving us a look of what's to come yeah well I think about uh, people that have pushed the market uh, like Jamie Okuma uh, Tammy Garcia, um, Preston Singletary, um, and they're they're a little bit older now and really affected this younger generation that's coming up. And there's no holds bar on what they're doing. I mean, it, that's what we're talking. It's all over. It's across the board. But again, I want to tell that younger generation, they all did their, they put their time mm -hmm. and they put their efforts in. I used to sell Jamie books when I used to, when I worked at Morningstar. She'd come in and we'd we'd look at old beadwork together. I'd open the drawers and we'd talk about stuff. And she always walked out of there with arms full of books yeah. from museum collections, other private collections. She was absorbing everything she could. And you could see that that was being directly translated into her own beadwork. And same thing, Tammy, how many different things has she been her, you know her library, mm -hmm. right? She was always interested too in knowing where traditions have been, styles, but then pushing things forward. Well, I remember the first um, pushing that Tammy did was uh, taking a Santa Clara style of pottery, the carving in black or, or, or polychrome. Um, and they were so restrictive at first. It's like, you can't, if you're gonna be a traditional potter, you can only use these images. Um, and Tammy was, what was shocking is one of the first pots that blew my mind was uh, she did an Akuma parrot jar <laughs> in Santa Clara style. And she took a lot of heat for that, death threats and everything. But um, it's, it's kind of a crazy journey, but that laid a foundation for where we're at in some ways. And I, I think some of these artists had had to go through that part of trying to take from tradition and respect it in a different way. And so that's cool. Um, I want to move on to another, uh, another thing. So Blue Rain has been in existence uh, in February of this next year for 30 years, which is amazing. Um, but in those 30 years, we uh, built monstrous collections. And uh, you know this, when we go to homes, uh, Blue Rain gets collections that can run anywhere from uh, 100 pieces to thousands at a time. And um, when I started in this business, I was 23 years old. And uh, most of my customers at 23 were in their 60s, but you add 30 years to that, most of them passed on, those early collectors. Um, or some of them are getting older now and they have to de-excess. And so I want you to cover three areas um, of how to de-excess a collection. 
and that would be one museums, auction, uh, galleries. Tell us how you feel about those three areas. Tricky. Mm -hmm. um, and potentially a lot of emotion involved besides just the financial stuff. Um, and that's something that I, I take very seriously in what I, what I do as an appraiser is that I do have to be mindful about balancing, you know, collections for individuals can be a huge investment of money and time. And it can also be a lot of personal investment, meaning that they've developed relationships with the artists or they have sentimental memories with trips that they took to the Southwest, or maybe it was they inherited things themselves. Um, so one of the first things I do when approaching these collections that have, that are looking to update themselves or deaccession, however, there's lots of different ways to do that. So the first things I always do is I try, I talk to the client about what, what are their goals? You know, I don't ever encourage particularly collectors who are getting older to necessarily empty their houses because those are the things that they love. And but there's ways to do that, correct? Right? Especially correct. through so museum making a donations. Plan. Yeah. yeah. So making a plan. So when we're talking about a collector that has hundreds of things, then we we need to start to you know first and foremost I'll say to them, do you have storage? Because you know a lot of these collectors will have closets or offsite storages where they're rotating their. Well, arms. let me give you an example. <laughs> One of my business associates died 12 years ago, and uh, his widow decided to. Uh, sell the house so she had to go clean out and uh, before we knew it how many pots were in there was up 350 400 plus pots um, but I can tell you that every one of those pots he collected direct onto reservations he was going out there all the time and you could tell who his favorite artists were and because there's a lot of them uh, but there, the house was loaded in the closets <laughs> she was finding pots here there and everywhere and uh, pretty amazing and actually you helped me with uh, that part of that donation too, where she, what was the museum that they donated to? Do you remember? The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Oh, nice. Virginia Museum of Fine Art. That went, and that was probably 200 pieces on top of the 400 that we got. And there's a museum too, just as an aside, that's been gathering up as much Native American material, period, mm -hmm. as they can. They've been very, very active yeah. in, in developing that part of their, their collections. Um, so yeah, so empty go, let's go to the storage first right so again so for those collectors if you have something up on the wall don't take that down if you love it continue to live with it but if you have four other by that artists that are maybe you know that are in storage or maybe a lot of these clients have more than one home too yeah so these are kinds of things to talk about what are the pieces that they're really enjoying so that's one of the first steps i take with people is let's separate out those you know, let's make an ABC list, if you will, the A's being, or the number ones being, I can't live without these. I never want to sell them. There's no amount of money in the world that can ever replace them. Great. Set those aside. Then we have the B's and the C's. The B's are the ones that we like them, but, and then the C's are, well, we don't, we're past that style. So again, we start to find that there are plans that start to naturally unfold based on the client's interest. Now again, too, then we'll start to talk second layer. If they want to sell, do they want to donate? Uh, do they want to set these things aside for inheritance? Seems like a, what you're talking about is uh, people wanting to downsize a home because usually that's what's happening. But the, the second part of that is 
what we're finding out is a lot of these collectors who are passing on, their children don't want anything to do with it. And that creates uh, market and fluctuations because you get batches and batches coming in at a time. That's right. It, and, and I'll get nerdy on you here for a moment. In the appraisal world, when we have a large block of material come on the market in one moment, we call, there's a term associated for that called blockage. It's, it's taken from the stock market, right? The idea that if you dump a bunch of stock on the market on the same day, the reality is that the individual price of those stocks is probably going to go down because the absorption by the market of those stocks takes time. Correct. So art functions in the same way. It's actually, I would say it's even harder to liquidate than stocks yeah. because again, if I, as an appraiser, am being asked to appraise 200 pieces of pottery that are going to be valued as of the same time, absolutely blockage is going to play in because I'm going to have to pay attention to, well, what kind of pottery is it? Who are the artists? Is it old? Is it new? What are those individual markets doing? So if we have an artist that's passed, for example, the market is consistent of the secondary market of resales, right? All the work that that artist made while they were living and versus living artists, right? And this is where it gets tricky with these big estates because sometimes you'll have a living artist in their collection who's still making art today. The pieces that they made 15 years ago are acting differently on the market than their primary new works. And that can be sometimes, a, you know, a difference of 40 to 60% for an artist from the primary market to the secondary market. So that's something that as an appraiser, when I go in and look at these collections, again, take a Virgil or whoever, for someone who's had a long career, I need to be able to value that little bear that he did when he was a teenager to other little bears that are out there and certainly not compare it to any of the new work. That, so it's that's comparing really, apples and apples. That's really uh, hard for most people to wrap their heads around because they get emotionally tied uh, to a price value. And especially when they see uh, a contemporary artist that they collected 20 years ago having excessive prices now and trying to figure that balance. And that can also be offset by the amount of production of that artist. Absolutely. The quantity uh, that they've made in their Because their again, we're talking about absorption. So if yes. you have a contemporary artist who has been smart and meters the amount of new work that they put out at the level that the market can absorb it, all of a sudden now they're working with the concept of demand, right? right? right. You're keeping the collectors waiting for those pieces. And again, we can use Tammy Garcia as a perfect example of how Blue Rain used that method to create her market in the sense of having her only focus on eight to ten pieces for an august show and those eight to ten pieces are all tens yeah um as opposed to you know the idea of filling up your booth at indian market with 40 pieces because you've got a year's worth of salary to make over a weekend right. and you can't afford to have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. So three or four jars. I mean, this is actually what I wrote my master's thesis on oh, nice. <laughs> was, well, these marketing um, concepts, right? And how artists, do you make a lot to make more money or do you make less with higher quality? And again, different artists have to approach that it depends and how they, they feel because they don't they don't always feel them correct or even media types they're right? not thinking about the long term or an economic uh push up paintings versus potter versus sculptors who are working in bronze i mean additions singles mm -hmm. one-offs 
there's yeah it well in some of those cases we 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 those artists um like tammy they're easy it's easy to keep their prices in the, the same range um unless you go to auction houses which i think are destructive uh in general but sometimes there's so much material i, I just that's the fastest way to liquidate anything uh, because some of these people don't they just want the money back the auction market is a that's another podcast mm -hmm. <laughs> um and I do wish, particularly um, since we are focused on the contemporary side of this market, auction houses are trying. Um, it's still new for them. In fact, I, I would say that having auction sales focused on modern and contemporary native art sales alone are relatively new in the last five years. I would say maybe a couple others. I mean, there's always you've always had contemporary artists tucked into other categories of auction sales. Um, but never where you've just had one sale focused on all contemporary or modern art. Um, Cowens and Bonhams have both tried to do that um, with varying success. Yeah, I think uh, the, the older auction houses have been left behind. They have not um, built enough base of collectors to sustain what they're trying to sell, and therefore you have a deflation. And uh, so that's something to think about when you're deassessing. Uh, yes, it's a fast way to uh, liquidate your collections, but you're not preserving um, the price, and uh, you're probably gonna be pretty sad at what you're gonna get. Um, unless you have a fridge shoulder. Unless you have a fridge shoulder. If, you, if something's <laughs> hot, fine. But if you have that much material and it's just, oh, um, it, it's gonna be tough. So that, that brings to the third point, the, the importance of, of galleries. And um, we're talking about that as far as the artists. I think about uh, Tony, Tammy, Preston, Virgil, um, Jodine Ranho, all of this, that age group has pretty much sent their work through the gallery systems and it's why they have su succeeded the best and, the, and to the highest levels. Um, the same thing can be said for, well, the, the, the importance of the gallery in that, that environment is to help preserve the price and to push it forward. When a collection comes to us, we, we treat it the same way. Uh, in the same principles we want to preserve if not push if we can and sometimes we can't we got to talk about the reality and uh, the prices can sometimes it's there's too much material out there and it pushes the prices down and that's just a fact and it, do you see it that way as well absolutely yeah. absolutely there um there are times to be conservative and there are times to push the market and the some of its timing some of it's a little bit of luck, but really the most of it is about observing and, and as you said, it's calculated risk. Because again, when we're, as you said earlier, we can go back and forth for an hour when we're trying to price things with an artist and talking about all the reasons why to keep it the same or to push it. And we can go around and around and around, but at the end of the day, it's when that buyer comes in and buys it mm -hmm. that 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 that's the biggest compliment and that's correct. the the apex of what you're trying to do um that that's pretty cool well vanessa thanks for stopping by today and we'll have you over again we'll think about some more subjects like the auction houses <laughs> um to go more into but i appreciate you coming in i would like to encourage everybody to subscribe to our podcasts on any platforms they can you can go to our website blu-raygallery.com 
and go under the podcast bar, which takes you to our YouTube channel. Um, I uh, brought something for Vanessa today. I know this character is one of her favorite artists. Who's this? Chris Pepin. Yep, Chris Pepin. And um, those mugs are great. They will keep your water cool all day long or hot. Are you really? Yeah. Um, I like to encourage people to uh, go to our website, blueraynprintshop.com, to bring art into your everyday life. Thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, I'll sign up for five more of these. <laughs> nice. This was fantastic. That wasn't so bad. <laughs>